Hey guys, before we start this episode, I want to uh, very quickly promote my friend Barry James' book, Counting Stick Control. Barry is one of the last living students of George Lawrence Stone. He worked with Stone, I believe, back in the 50s, and um, he had all the information directly from Stone, primarily on how to actually count stick control. Stick Control is one of the most famous books in history, but it does not include the count. The book on its own, without knowing Barry, is worth buying, but I will say that Barry has been um, battling cancer for a while now. So if you buy this book, Counting Stick Control, from Barry for $25, it's $19.95 plus $5 shipping uh, in the U.S., and then just we can figure it out if you're outside of the U.S., it directly supports his cancer treatment uh, for him and his family, and all the money goes to him. Uh, he prints it himself. He is mailing them himself. He's doing everything. So to get the book, though, I'm going to help out and kind of keep track of things a little bit on, on on my end through this. Email me at drumhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Again, drumhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And then I will connect you and give you the right PayPal account to send it to get to Barry. And I'll get your address to Barry and we'll, we'll make it work um, to make sure you get a book. So again, email me drumhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We'll get you the book and you are directly supporting Barry. Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am joined by Mr. Alfonso Adenolfi of Boom Theory. Al, welcome to the podcast. Bart, nice to be here and thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple months. We've been talking about different things and uh, and it's, it's cool to learn more about your brand because I wasn't aware of all the incredible um, accomplishments you've had until our mutual friend, um, Lucas O'Connor or Lucas Von Gretsch is as he's uh, known online, um, told me about you and said, you'd be a great guest. So Lucas worked with you before, correct? Lucas was my, uh, production manager for a short period of time. And he's one of the most incredible kids I ever met. And I love him dearly. Yeah. 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 And he's, he's a member of the Gretsch family and does a great job. Um, basically continuing on their their legacy and all that good stuff. So uh, yeah. great friend of the show. So, um, all right, Al, this is very interesting, I think, because we're talking about electronic drums. We're talking about uh, acoustically formatted electronic drums, which there's a lot of things that that you, your brain, you've got a very interesting brain that works with this stuff. As you said, you like you do visceral engineering, which yeah. is... Uh, <laughs> I think you said you are the idiot savant of electro percussion, which is a that whenever anybody asks me describe yeah, that's it. I am the idiot savant of electro percussion and visceral engineering is a term that I believe I uh, coined many years ago and I don't have a formal education. Um, I'm also ADD and dyslexic, so I have a difficult time getting anything done. And usually the only way I achieve anything is I have to bash it first and then fix it. Um, mm. so if I can hold it in my hands, I can figure out how to make it work. Yeah. Very inter interesting. It's kind of inspirational in a way. Cause I think electronics engineering, it's like daunting kind of, I mean, I look at things and I go, Oh God, I can't do that. I don't know anything about that. But a guy like you who just comes in and like, you're like, no, I can do this. I love that. I think it's really cool and powerful to say like, no, I can figure it out. And people can look at your example and go, you know, well, he did it. Maybe I can do it. And that opens it up yeah. for the next generation, too. Well, uh, it's I never considered myself any great genius at this, but it was more necessity. Uh, the company started in 89. I was doing industrial soundtracks for Boeing and uh, I was using the little Roland flying triangles. Roland was, you know, a, a very powerful electric drum company even back then. Uh, and I, I had to go back into the studio and step right all the dynamic parts. And I said, this is ridiculous. I can make something better. And it took me two years and about 30 grand of unsecured credit card loans. And, and I figured out how to make an insert, which I've always referred to as uh, almost intelligent in its ability to decide, you know, to de decipher what is an airborne sympathetic vibration and what is actual impact. And, and I think mm. that's the, uh, uh, the misconception always was that space muffins were a drum stuffed with foam, but no, you, you take a drum set stuffed with foam on stage and expose it to high decibels and it's playing itself. And, uh, yeah, I was able yeah. to figure out how to make that work. 
So let's just like completely back up. And my goal with this is to like, again, you have such an accomplished background with all this stuff. I just want to like make sure people realize kind of the importance of your contributions and your patents and all that stuff. So let's go back to the very beginning of boom theory. And there's the, um, the space muffins and all that kind of stuff. But like, as we're starting to hear your background is your introduction to electronic drums, which you sort of did before with working with the Roland stuff. What was happening in, at the time in the landscape of electronic drums that that made you kind of want to change this? Well, you had uh, it started, of course, with Dave Simmons, and Dave made this incredible product, which to this day is amazing. Um, and then my first introduction was the Tom and Tech Stars, which are my favorite electronic drum pads. And then I moved to D-Drum, and Magnuson and Yetta were back in Connecticut, and I, I had the first D-Drum studio module that I brought out here, and I was totally hooked on electronics, and I loved the idea of playing on a, on a natural head, but it was killing my wrists and elbows. And, uh, and then after the um, Roland episode at the uh, uh, Boeing Studios, I said, that's it. And uh, that was pretty much the landscape, that everything was a pad, and I said, I'm going to build an electric drum, and, and that was my first pursuit. And like I said, it took me about two, almost two and a half years and 30 grand of experimenting, and I finally came up with a, with a great design, and, and the first supporter and, and booster of Boom Theory was Mr. Michael Shreve, and Michael is a dear friend, and I love him very much, and Michael is such an electronics drum expert. Uh, he's been playing electronic drums, I mean, even before I even bought a set of drums. Wow. And uh, Michael came into the studio where I was working on it, and he said, make me a set. And I made him a set. And uh, uh, it's, it's such a, we, the, the way the company was capitalized was because they started writing articles about, uh, about the space muffins in, in uh, local papers and entrepreneurial sort of uh, focuses on what I was doing. And next thing I knew, Norm Waite, who was the co-founder of Gateway Computers, contacted me through one of his uh, his um, employees and sent a Learjet to pick up Michael and I, flew us out to Dakota Dunes and gave me two and a half million bucks to start the company. So you're um, in a Learjet so I, with the drummer from Santana, thanks yeah. to the guy from Gateway Computers. I mean, it's just like... Yeah. Wow, uh, it, uh, that's a book in itself. But yeah, I came. I came home with uh, with funding for for Boom Theory, and Michael came home with his own record label. So, that Jeez, was, it was, Louise, that was a well, good day, I, man. Yeah, but I think that comes down to people want to trust like y you as a person and him. Obviously, his background and and you yeah. know that that's really cool. But uh, that's great that if some people would get put in that position and not walk away with anything, they would have blown it. But it sounds like people you got you were trusted no believe me his board wanted me to die they wanted nothing <laughs> to do with me uh at one point in the meeting after i presented the um the business plan uh norm said to me what's the first thing you're going to do and i said i'm going to rip up this friggin' business plan and throw it in the garbage because there's no way i'm, I'm going to be able to adhere to this and he said well what are you telling me i said i'm telling you that if i want to spend two and a half million dollars on green m m's it's my call and you either believe i can do it or i can't and uh his gatekeeper uh gentleman named steve Celine, just said no no we're not doing it and and it's a long story like i said there is a book in itself uh Sure. Uh, that was that that was a soap opera that we went through. But yeah, it was it was yeah. one of the best days. And I'll always be grateful to Norm for trusting me and, and uh, writing the chat. Unbelievable. And so people can kind of and I don't know how it evolved over time, but so you can visualize it. These are acoustic. You look at them from the outside, the space muffins, and they're acoustic drums that you look at. And it's an acoustic kit that has electronics under the heads. And this was not around at the time at all right this was no uh, space muffins were the first acoustically formatted electric drum they were the first full-size acoustically formatted electric drum and um i i love beta testing as you probably know i love sending out products and letting people just beat the crap out of them and tell me what's wrong i have no ego about this stuff hmm. i want to know what's wrong with them and my dear friend, Mr. Matt Cameron, who was one of the first endorsees of the company, um, 
agreed to take a couple of small pads out. And that was one of the most important beta tests we ever did because that's when I learned that you cannot put a space muffin pad on the same stage with a Keplinger snare drum and expect it not to false trigger. Huh, um, yeah. Oh, Kep, Kep builds cannons, as you know. And sure. Another yeah. dear friend, Greg. Um, and that was some of the most important R&D I did. And from that, I was able... Um, are you familiar with Scott Columbus, the late Scott Columbus from Man of War? No. Okay, so Man of War holds the Guinness records for the loudest stage volume ever. I've heard well, that, Scott, yes. So Scott, Scott uh, contacted me and he said... I'm sending you my drums. I want you to trigger them. I have triggered drums for many, many people. But Scott was the the challenge where I said, okay, if I can do this. So um, so I triggered Scott's drums, and we sent him out on the Kings of Metal tour uh, through Europe. And uh, he had had difficulties the whole time, and the drums performed flawlessly, and they didn't false trigger. And that's when I knew I had perfected the inserts. Yeah, with the loudest band <laughs> on earth so can we just kind of explain that a little bit as we're at that point to trigger the drums would be meaning is he simultaneously playing them as like acoustic drums that are miked and also they're it's just like an aesthetic that they look like real drums yeah he was he was he was triggering an 0.0 module which is that's a whole other thing uh he triggered the 0.0 module which which we built and uh and he was also Midding out into a D drum, uh, I believe he was using a D drum three with some samples on it. But there were, I think they had one overhead mic for the cymbals because he wow. was using acoustic cymbals. But everything was being triggered. Hmm. What year was that? Before Christ was born, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like nine, 90s, uh, probably. 90, 98, 99. Okay. I'd have to look up the Kings of Metal tour, but yeah, around wow. that period. Now. Why would someone in his position, like, like, I guess at that point, beyond just experimenting, what is the benefit at that point of totally, because I've never really heard of that, someone triggering their full kit with like a metal band like that. What's the, what would you well, say that, would be the benefit at that time? Well, the problem he was having was the stage volume was so loud and that the, the bleed through of the microphones oh, just from sure. the guitars and everything was just coming through. Uh, the monitors coming through the PA. So, so it gotcha. wasn't the drums were being washed out, but but there was so much bleed through, so he tried triggering. And you also have to remember, and I actually have this videotape on the uh, on the on the uh, Facebook page, and and it's Scott addressing the European European drum press, and uh, and he never actually referred to me, but he's saying, yeah, well, here's the evolution because it was not hip to play electric drums in a metal band, sure. and and Scott had the balls to do it, and. Uh, and the amazing thing was is that he says, well, I did this, and then I went to this, and then I tried D-drums, and that was okay. He goes, and then I met this cat from Washington, and he triggered my drums, and they worked flawlessly, but he never actually named me. But uh, you have to understand the vibe back then. It was like, you're playing electrics? What the hell kind of metal drummer are you? So That's been the uphill battle forever with, with, with I feel like even now, if you see someone playing traditionally like, like a V-drum, clearly this is electric kit, it does have a bit of a, a feel to it. Whereas when it's a kit that looks totally natural and real and is in these you know beautiful shells that you have, I'm on your website and you've got some awesome stuff with, with wraps and you can customize it and it looks like real drums. But all right, so you have some patents along the way. So so as oh. you created those patents, what was that process like? Because I have looked at it. I had an idea for a product years ago, and I was like, maybe I'll ask. I asked a friend who's an IP attorney. That's not a pleasant, easy, fun experience to get a patent. I mean, what was that? the story well, with that? You patents, like we spoke about this earlier, and it's like I said, a, a a patent is only as good as your ability to defend it, and you have to have some deep pockets. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I had the Japanese companies come in. In 1992, they came into my booth with videotape and started videoing everything we were doing, not just me, but everybody in the electronic field, even uh, Lenny Green from MIDI Sims. Um, uh, Everybody's stuff was copied, but not copied to the point where 
um, where you'd have a clear infringement case. But I mean, if you've got a membrane touching foam, touching a touching a sensor, that would be a violation of my patent um, or mm. possibly somebody else's patent. But but the difference is in an acoustically formatted drum, there was no question because there were no acoustically formatted drums. There were no full size electric drums. As a matter of fact, I'm always amazed when when you see the products that are out now and everybody's going, where we have a full size acoustic drum set. Oh, what an innovation. You know, I mean, I mean, and it was always about motor memory to me. It's like, why yeah. do you have to play these little drums when you have trained and honed your skill on an entire drum set? So, sure. uh, so my desire has always been to be the, um, the wood weighted keyboard equivalent of the drum world. That is what yep. I've always aspired to be. I've always wanted to, it's just like, it feels just like a drum set. And yep. um, so, yeah, but, uh, yeah. but you've seen the evolution since then, as far as the patents go, I, I have, uh, I've just received my 11th utility patent on an integrated bass drum, which eliminates the need to plug everything in using like a snake Mm -hmm. uh, that goes directly out of the drum into a DB25. And speaking of the DB25, the 0.0 module was the first electronic instrument in the history of the industry, not just the drum industry, any industry, to use a multi-input trigger system, which it took everybody else about 10 years to figure out and copy. Wow. But um, I also wow. built the first integrated rack system, which competitors tried to duplicate but you know didn't fortunately um well what is can you explain each of these a little bit like when and to explain with people i have experience with db25s with using pro tools and studios where it would be mm -hmm. back of your it's basically from from my perspective of like you've got rack mounted gear where instead of having you know 16 outs of microphones you'd have a deep a breakout cable like a db25 cable that then goes one little harness goes then to the back of your converter or something. But like, uh, what do you, yeah, explain more about the best, of, well, the, best, the best and, example. Yeah. yeah, best example would be um, one of my favorite Roland modules was the TD9 uh, version two and the TD15, which I use to this day. And on the back, you have the DB25 input, which they basically copped from the 0.0, which we put out in 1997. And uh, as you know, you have this gnarly snake system, which absolutely sucks. Yeah. So, so what I did is I integrated the entire snake into the bass drum. So at the lower left and lower right and top of the drum, everything that you can plug into the back of a TD9, TD, TD15, TD17, TD25, anything that's even, even the Elisa's products that utilize a, um, a multi-pin input, um, all you do is plug everything into the bass drum, and I'm using 3.5 mini plugs because the idea that you need a quarter inch jack is absurd. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, this wire here, right here, is all you need to send that signal. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so basically, you're plugging everything into the bass drum. You come out of DB25 into the back of your unit, and and it's virtually wireless. So that's awesome. And that's uh, so that's what I did. Now, the the original incarnation to that was the integrated rack system where um, you had to, you put your toms on a rack and then you plugged everything into strategic points on a Gibraltar rack system, which I would buy the tubing and then we would retrofit it to work. Uh, and then after I invented what we referred to the, as the actual mount system, the axe system, which to this second, I am the only manufacturer that you can mount your rack toms on a totally electric bass drum, whack a baseball bat on your toms and you won't trigger either tom or the bass drum. That's so crazy. This, I know. So this is the kind yeah. of stuff that I've been doing for 30 plus years, but I've flown under the radar and um, I've made most of my sales to churches and by triggering other people's drums. Like some people you don't talk about that you triggered their drums because they have a very, very exclusive contract and they're not going to lose their ride. And some people don't care, like Scott sure. didn't care. Or, um, uh, you know, when I did Tommy Lee's uh, bass drum, he didn't care. 
That's interesting, though. So, I mean, but like without we're not asking any names or anything, but that's interesting to know that there are people out there in the world who are like famous drummers playing, you know, X, Y and Z brands. But what you're actually hearing through the speakers are triggered samples from well, the, someone the, like the, you. Yeah, the the X series, which is another one of my patents, which I patented back in the 90s, was the world's first fully acoustic and electric drum i would embed the sensors into the shell wall mm. and uh and i did that because we were in the studio and i was watching them trying to trigger electric sounds off of tape you know they, they'd roll the two inch tape and try and trigger sound i go nah, that doesn't seem right so i took a mm. i took a little while and i figured out how to embed the sensors so you could be able to record in a total analog and digital domain simultaneously, you would have total dynamics, total performance data, and in post-production, you could go back and either blend an electric and acoustic sound or totally eliminate the acoustic sound and, and substitute it with the electric, and you'd have total performance data, which D-Drum then tried to do with their hybrid. And, you know, yeah. I, I was doing that 30 years ago. So, it, again... Yeah. Another patent, which um, they did it differently, of course, but the whole vibe and the whole idea. And uh, my dear friend, Mr. Brian Van Tassel, has a whole demo on YouTube of his uh, X series and how well they work. And um, sure. And every now and then I'll get somebody who'll say, yeah, build me an X series, which is a fully acoustic kit that uh, that triggers simultaneously. That's so that's the like, um, I guess that's like the the Mac Daddy series, though, where you can get the bo best of both worlds and you can you can play your drums in the room, but you're also then simultaneously running out and getting that sound to the board that you can then enhance. I imagine people sometimes with the X series that you have would do a little bit of both where they'd maybe mic it and blend a sample in with the the trigger if they're playing in a live situation. Is it like... In, in in a live yeah. situation, and and most of the people that are that have bought X series are in um, like casino cover bands, and all of a sudden you're just going to drop out the acoustic sounds, and you need your 808 drum sure. set to, cool. to, yeah. to to do some you know some hip hop stuff, or you need this jazz fusion sound where you can blend it together. But um, yeah, that's what that's what the X series is all about. But uh, it was actually a a studio application. Um, that brought me to do that. And then that brought, that yielded the bridge deck, which is now starting to be covered or copied, I should say. And the bridge deck is the first um, graduated layered snare or drum. And it started out totally as a, uh, as an electronic experiment to give myself a little more meat on the, on the shell so I could embed the sensor properly. Cause the snare of course is taking the hardest hits and it turned out to be an incredible acoustic drum hmm. um yeah well, what i mean explain the bridge deck a little bit more though so like what when someone buys it it's it, so it's an acoustic it's the similar to the x series you have though where it's an acoustic snare that also is triggered has has but like what makes it or explain well, it. The, yeah. the, the the design started out totally electric but it ends up that now I just build the bridge deck as an acoustic drum. I can also incorporate the electronics into it, but Got the bridge it. deck, the bridge deck started out. We have to step. I'll explain. Um, sure. I love thin shell drums. And the way I explain this is if you take a cardboard, let's say you have a six inch diameter cardboard tube and you have an industrial size, which is a quarter inch wall, really thick, and you tap on it, and it's going to go dink, dink, dink. But if you take the same diameter tube and it's only a sixteenth of an inch, like a paper towel roll, and you go dink, 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 it goes boom, 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 because those walls can resonate. Yeah. So, so I wanted to build a drum. Now, originally, I wanted to build it because I just wanted more meat to put to embed the sensor in because I build thin shell drums. But what happened was, is I would do layering on. So I would start out with, say, 16-ply on top and then gradually go down to an 8-ply, then a 5-ply, and then 10-ply at the bottom. And what I was getting was all the pop and focus you would expect from a thick shell or, or a dense shell and all the resonance and tone of a thin shell drum. So hmm. it, I didn't begin it that way. That wasn't the intention, but it turned out to be a great-sounding acoustic drum. 
as is the one I'm experimenting with right now, which is the ICE series, which is uh, the incremental Kunga emulation, which um, I'm, the response to this drum has been overwhelming. And it's just, hmm, awesome. I, I just, I don't want to build what everybody else is building. I want to, I want to keep looking for new designs and new way to, to make things work. But, but yeah, that, yeah. so I digress. The bridge deck came from that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, it needs to be said that like, yes, you have, you're extremely innovative in electronic drums. You've, you're doing all this cool stuff, but like, kind of like, you know, it, it can't be forgotten that you're like a really, uh, well-established drum builder in general. You know what I mean? Well, like that, I appreciate that. And I, I like to consider myself a drum builder as opposed to so many of these people that are drum assemblers. You buy a shell, you put a 45 degree edge on it, you put some generic stuff on it, and you say, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And they may, uh, uh, you know, it's sad to me that innovation in this industry has, has been reduced to a new finish, you know? Uh, mm, and I've, I've always referred to this as the war of the wood circles. And again, drum, drum tone is so subjective. And I have maintained for 20, 30 years that the single most important part of your, uh, of your drum sound is your head selection. And, and that's really what it comes down to. And I could tell you a story about that at the NAMM show if you want to hear it. But Yeah, please. I love it. I think it was 2007 and we're in drum row and everybody's a sweetheart. And I, well, I'll tell you who won't mind me saying it. Brian Spawn, my buddy, Brian Spawn was there. I think Kep was there, Greg Keplinger. And we had representatives from all the major drum companies. Um, I believe the late, uh, I think it was Phil Edelson. I think that was his last name from Yamaha was there. Phil is gone. But anyway, the, the discussion was, wood shells and everybody's going, well i like the warmth of rosewood and nothing projects like babinga and this that and the other thing and they're going on and on and on and i'm standing there listening to it and i'm going i'm going the most important part of anything is the drum head and they all started you know it was very good nature and they're going what the hell do you know you're an electric <laughs> drum builder and i said okay that's it and this it had to be 2007 because washington mutual was still a bank mm -hmm. um uh, so I said, okay, on Harbor Avenue, there's a Washington Mutual. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get $5,000 in cash right now. I'm going to come back here. I said, each one of you go to your booths, bring back a six and a half by 14 inch drum. I'm going to go talk to, to Remo. I'm going to get all the same heads and I'm going to get, I was going to call Cap and say, Cap's going to tune every one of the drums. I said, we're all going to turn our back. Anybody who can tell me which is a rosewood and which is a babinga wood and which is maple, I'll give you $5,000. How many people you think took the bet? <laughs> None, I bet. So I can yeah. barely, I can just about tell the difference between a metal shell and a wood shell. Just barely. But, uh, um, I mean, the in my opinion, drum head, bearing edge, and depth are the three most uh, critical parts of, of what your drum's gonna sound like. Um, There's some woods that I have to admit are really incredible. Um, the Mapex Walnut Maple Shell, what a beautiful sounding drum that is. And Mr. Paul Weary of Metro Drums in Australia has access to some of the most incredible woods I've ever heard. And my favorite being Turpentine, which I'm trying to get Paul to send me some turpentine shells, but he's too damn busy to do it. So, mm, yeah. But uh, the turpentine is an amazing wood. I've never even heard of turpentine. I've heard of turpentine, like you know, oh, the like oh, the different like, the chemical or whatever. But yeah, not the wood. No, the turpentine tree. They're the average about 600 years old. Um, then you've got uh, Tasmanian blackwoods, another favorite. The Jahara is a beautiful um, outer ply. Go to Metro Drums and look at what Paul makes. It's absolutely beautiful and totally opposite of what I make. I am, I am a totally organic builder. I cannot stand poly coating. I do everything with a burnt shellac finish. I want to be able to feel the grain of the wood in my hands. Sure. Um, every time I see a poly coat, I always think of you know the plastic covering on Grandma's couch. 
you know, to stop the dog from peeing on it. You know, I am a totally organic builder and uh, I, I think crushed bugs make the best finish on a drum. Burnt shellac mm. is my... And squidding. That's another one I love doing is a natural really? squidding. What's that process like, squidding? Well, when my shop was in Magnolia, right by Fisherman's Terminal, have you ever seen Deadliest Catch? Oh, yeah. Okay, so where those boats used to dock, I used to go down there and I'd buy halibut and I'd buy crab. And one day this guy's coming out with a with a five-gallon bucket full of this disgusting looking pouches. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's squidding pouches. And I said, I said, well, what's it do? He goes, do you don't want to get it on your hands? It'll stain. It'll be terrible. I said, how much you want for the bucket? He said, just give me five bucks for the bucket. You can have the squidding for free. <laughs> and, and I gave him five bucks and I hauled it back to the shop and I started doing squidding finishes. And it's almost uh, it's almost got this violet undertone, depending on the light, but Man. it's it's an amazing finish. I have heard of many things, but I've never heard of squid ink being used. I, I've seen, I remember fishing as a kid with my brother, and we got some squid that we were using as bait at some shop and puncturing something. I guess it had ink on it, and I remember ruining my shorts forever oh, yeah. as a kid. And I was like, I'll never forget that. But that's incredible. You don't see that kind of, uh, you're, again, it's the innovation that I think you that just kind of oozes out of what you're doing where yeah, I don't I'm want to say you take for right, granted, but, but <laughs> you're 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 pretty uh uh you're very innovative. And that now that being said, it leads me to the question of innovative guy like you, you've got patents, you said the the you know hardest thing to do is defend your patents. You have been copied quite a bit over the years. Yeah. I've heard other people talk about that. Um, I remember Jason from ProLogic's Percussion, who made great pads. He was talking about how he just found out that they're just making identical pads in China. And what do you do? Yeah. And you you got to shut it down. What's just what's that process been like for you with with people copying your designs and stuff? You go between being flattered and enraged. And um, when you see some of these big companies taking your your vibe, not not 100% your idea, but something that could be questionable and making four or $500 million off it. It, it burns your ass a little, but then you go, you know yeah. what? I am so proud that what I did was the first and, and something that, I mean, I've had people tell me that what I did literally changed the direction of the electric drum industry. And maybe that's yeah. true and maybe it's not, but it's something that I don't mind hearing. And if nothing else, if I'm not going to get the cash, at least I get the satisfaction of saying, yeah, I, I did that one right. And and that's what I continue to try and do. I continue to try and do it right. And yeah. I don't necessarily know if, um, if the payday is ever going to come. And at this point, I don't care. I just, I'm going to do this till they carry me out of the shop. And I like it. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, you've you have accomplished a lot and and I've had things where there's episodes I'll do where I'm like it maybe it's something that I think is a story that needs to be told it's someone a builder or a, someone who founded a business that's a great thing in the drum industry and maybe it doesn't get 50,000 views but I think to myself yeah that doesn't matter that story now lives on forever and it's just like it's important just to have that information and have that that out there there's some parallels to that where obviously with yours, it's much bigger well, and there's <laughs> hundreds of millions well, of dollars, but yeah, that, that's why what you do is watched by so many people. And, and I definitely appreciate it. And, and I think it's, it's sort of cool that, yeah, I get well, to spew you. my guts for once. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, 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 I'm, I'm honored to have you as a part of it, but before we move forward, I do want to I want to cover everything because you talked about the space muffins, uh, which I I think just just in general to kind of like talk about your lines. There was a space muffins. I'm looking at your website, bridge deck X series zero dot zero. Is there anything with those that like you don't think we covered yet? Because like, let's talk about the module. Well, for the last five years, I've been trying to do the reissue and between the pandemic, the supply shortage stuff and now the inability to get um processors the the microprocessors that i mean i've got i know companies locally that are buying microwave ovens from samsung just to get the processors out of them and put them into their products because uh, you know wow. for what happened but um the 0.0 is an amazing story in itself because there was no way the 0. a company of my size and resources 
could have ever done it. And it, it, when I tell you the names associated, like when I think back uh, of the history of the company, like uh, Paul Mason from Tempest was was a consultant, a dear, another dear friend. And but we had to get rid of Paul because all we did was laugh and tell stories all day. And yep. then um, uh, Allegra, um, incredible craftsman. Just incredible craftsman. He came in and he was a consultant for a while. Then Lucas. And um, I, I mean, there's so many amazing people that have been affiliated with the company. But the 0.0 module was probably the most incredible achievement of all, simply because there was no way if the timing wasn't exactly right, it would have happened. And this happened because Insonic had, had come up with the Solution 1 chip. Was Remember back in the old days, you used to have to take a blade and stick it in the back of your computer to get sounds. Sure. And Creative Labs was making billions selling the Sound Blaster card. And then Insonic came up with the Solution 1 chip, which was a chip that had 16-bit digital sounds that you could populate directly onto a board. And that was... That was the death blow for creative unless they either came up with a competitive product or they did a hostile takeover of Insonic, and that's exactly what they did. And at the time, uh, another dear friend, Mr. Joel Brazy, who's one of the most incredible sound engineers and um, uh, just a brilliant guy, um, he was working for Insonic, and he called me up and he said, you still want to do a sound module? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, they're about to can the entire multimedia or uh, the entire musical division of Insonic. They're going to go all multimedia. Creative Labs is taking over. Said, And I said, okay, what do I do? And he hooked me up uh, with Mr. Andrew Weir and Brian McLaughlin, two incredible engineers. And mm. again, like I said, I'm the idiot savant of electro percussion. I was able to articulate what I wanted. And the first thing I told him is it had to trigger like a D-drum AT. I wanted the most beautiful dynamic triggering possible. And then I said, it's got to be able to stack eight individual voices. I want to be able to stack eight individual voices on each channel. I want indie ins. I want indie outs. Uh, we did two uh, 65K processors so I could actually trigger via MIDI faster than you could trigger directly into the, the module you were plugging into. All these features. And... Um, Joel said, okay, and we started the module, and I was able, the auto chip, just the auto chip alone, if I had to start from scratch and just get the auto chip, which I ended up uh, using in the 0.0 and uh, got my own source code to, it would have cost me $4 million. Now, I, yeah, so, um, so the first thing I did was, uh, we took it to the NAMM show and we introduced it and uh, we had only had enough money left to build 105 units. And, and then I had to buy my partners out shortly after. So we never went to the second round and it took me almost 30 years to raise the money to try it again. And then the pandemic happened, but we're still working Gosh, on it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I want to put out a, a, a reissue, but um, I'm doing what... Um, what I refer to as uh, it, it's retro tech because every time I look at the technology of modules today, it's like I talk to electric drummers all the time and I say, what's important to you? And it comes down to the same thing. You buy an electric drum module, you gravitate to one or two sets and that's all you ever play. Do yeah. you actually use the rest of this technology? I'd say maybe 3% of the a thousand drummers I've talked to say, yeah, I need this, I need that, I need the sync code, I need the mapping capability. It may be more now that, that there's more young kids coming into, into the market and the technology, but for most sure. part, most people just want to plug in and get a great acoustic drum sound or yep. a great electric drum sound for whatever they're using. But um, but uh, anyway, that the 0.0 would never have, I could never have done it today. It, mm -hmm. I was at the right place with the right time and enough cash in my pocket, and and that's uh and the other the other great innovation that came out of that module was the DB25 multi-pin input, which like again, like I said, was the very first time anybody had ever done it in any portion of the industry. That wasn't an invention of yours. That that input that that DB25 like 
cable no, no, the, or anything the, that existed. The, yeah, DB twenty five is common on your uh, your printer. I mean, oh okay, okay, yeah. I was making sure. I was like, wow, that seems like no, something you can get some money. No, off I, of. I didn't. I didn't invent anything. So all I all I did was say, if you take this and do this and this and this, then you could come out with this, and that's and that's where. Um, my visceral sure. engineering components come in. Like, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll go, you know, I, I don't know how to do this, but if I can articulate this vision to an engineer, and that's the important thing is having engineers with a musical background that are actually able to um, yeah, to understand what the hell you're talking about because I, I can babble on, as you know. So Sure. Well, no, and I love hearing it. It sounds like you're... you're I don't want to say you're in the right place at the right time a lot, but it seems like you uh, have been in some key points in the history of this operation where um, you're just ready to accept what's happening and kind of ride the wave. And I guess that's part of it. And 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 use your visceral engineering to you to kind of make things work for yourself. And I think that's been a very successful way to do it. Well, what I'm, what I'm working on right now acoustically is you know, the I-series, but electronically, I'm I'm working on a drum head. And if this works, and I'm praying it's going to work, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm starting the testing within the next month or so. Uh, and if this works, I will literally make every electric drum on the planet obsolete in 24 hours. So <laughs> no we'll see if deal. it works. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Oh, that's we're gonna exciting. Pr- we're gonna protect it this time. Yeah. You're the kind of person, and I feel the same way in different sort of avenues where you gotta always be doing something. You gotta always be working on something that's like trying the next thing. And then w- and isn't it just I love the feeling of like um, you know, if you're just it's even as small as like waiting for an email to come back that might say, like, hey, Al, your patent got accepted or something. Just always working and moving forward and trying something. And I completely get that vibe from you where you you are a doer. You know, it's just exciting to do stuff like that. It, it is. It, and and when even the, the smallest little success, I mean, it's like I say, if I if constantly being pissed off could in any way be equated to goodness, I'd be Jesus. And the opposite <laughs> side of that is that I have the lowest threshold for happiness of anybody I know. It takes almost nothing to excite me or make me happy, especially if it's a leggy redhead. But that's a whole different. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah. Um, all right. A couple more questions here for you. So basically, uh, we live in a time now where things are changing. This is a crazy time in technology with artificial yeah. intelligence, all that stuff. Uh, not really related to AI, but but what do you think about what's going on with, uh, I guess it would be last year at this point, about with DW, Roland, I guess it was the DWE kit where it was like completely wireless uh, where they're triggering things like that. I imagine it's Bluetooth. I don't want to say I'm an expert on it at all. I don't really know the, the background. What's your thoughts on all that stuff? Um, I think the, uh, I saw the video and yeah. Chad Wackerman, genius, uh, his samples are incredible. Um, what yeah. he was doing was great. When I put a Bluetooth drum set on the stage with the rest of the RF frequencies up there, I don't think I'd try it. Good luck. I, I hope it works. I'm very, very much into a directly wired system and minimizing the appearance of the wiring. But um, there's a, there's just a lot of frequencies on that stage. Bluetooth is not, in my opinion, while it's a great innovation, the great system, I don't see it as dependable enough to put on a stage. But Roland is a mighty company. Roland has some of the best engineers in the business. And if Roland thinks they can do it, I I think it'd be great. I might even buy a kit if it worked, you know? But yeah. um I don't I don't see it happening right now. If it was, I mean the, the video they put out to me was vaporware because if they had a if they had a working unit. Like when I first saw the DW kit that um is it uh, what's the German company that that bought the uh, majority stake in DW? Is that Jiwa? Uh, yeah, I think I think so. That's uh, what I was thinking. When I when I first saw that kit at the uh, Nam show a few years back, I said, "Well, you know, congratulations, DW, you finally built a set of space muffins." But um, the the idea that 
that it was going to, they weren't even talking about the Bluetooth technology back then. But if they do it, God bless them, man. I think it'd be, I think it'd be a great innovation. Um, Again, would I put a Bluetooth drum set on stage? Not at this particular point in the technology, but then a lot of weird stuff goes on at NAMM, but. Yeah. Well, that's the old like, and I don't know any of the details, but it's the old like, you know, like there would be the old things with like Steve Jobs and Apple and what he's showing of like an iPod. It like doesn't actually work. It's not ready. But uh, I mean, I see that and I go, man, that kind of that's like the the acoustic drums that are electric. I was like, that's what Al did. I mean, that's a space muffin, basically just modernized and attempting to well, be but they're they're also they're also using the mesh heads which to me is like playing on a pair of pantyhose although they have improved the uh they have improved the uh the feel of the mesh but still nothing feels like a mylar drum head um yeah. and you know i'm a huge fan of remo drum heads and that's what i would like to do is be able to incorporate that technology into an actual drum head so yeah. um but like I said, if they can do it, I, I want to play it. I want to I want to I want to see what it feels like, and and maybe it will reach a point where electric drums will receive the respect and the recognition for what they are—a completely different musical instrument. Just like an electric guitar is not a, an acoustic guitar, and never the twain shall meet. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I I love acoustic drums, but I would never never give up the versatility and the ability to i mean i can't play tablas but i can pull up a, an incredible set of sampled tablas on my on my uh, electric drum set and give you a fairly good representation yeah. you know but and it's fun you know, i mean that is one of oh. the most fun things is opening things that's like like my toms are set to be someone's voice and then there's a tabla over here there's nothing more fun than that have it's you ever like, heard the the Kabuki drum set on my? If you go on my Facebook page, all my goofy videos are there, and I did. I, I used to love doing this uh, sampled Kabuki set that um, was part of the Insonic Sound Library. Which, by the way, I am the only electric drum company on the planet that has rights to use the entire Insonic Sound Library, which is a mm-hmm. legendary um, library. Cool. That's again, Joel Brazy went around the world sampling these incredible, incredible percussion and and voice samples that were incorporated to the uh wow asrx1 and uh or the asrx pro uh, just just amazing amazing samples i've got i've got mm. quite a few videos using them so yeah that world of i used to do for my old job a lot of like for like commercials and videos and things there'd be sound design where you'd have a sound library which you would look through and you'd be you know car buys and you would find the the car going that's not quite right. Car door shutting. You'd look through yeah. 600 of them. That's an interesting world in itself of the yeah. act of sampling these things, which is... Well, uh, and that, I mean, just yeah. like a Foley artist would use, you know, exactly. all these incredible uh, access to. But um, but the editing of those and, and you take a sample, I, it's just mind boggling all the envelopes that you can screw with to make that sample what you want it to be. And I have great admiration for the people that have taken the time to learn how to do that because my thimble brain cannot manage it. So I just, (laughs) there's nothing I'm ever going to be able to do with that one. No, it's pretty cool. Um, But uh, Al, okay. So as we get kind of closer to the end here, why don't we talk a little bit about the, um, which uh, this might not, if you're listening to this, make sure you check the description for links and things like that. If it's up, but you've got a cool raffle, coming up that you're putting together for the ukrainian relief drum yeah Yeah, let's talk about that this is one of the australian shells which is the aussie exotic line it's a solid tasmanian blackwood reinforced and uh i started this project a year ago march and i it was my intention to auction it off for relief for um uh, ukrainian children who had been displaced and just as a matter of clarity I have no preconceived notions or I am totally aware of the corruption that has taken place in the Ukrainian government. But as I see them evolve and try and move towards democracy, I I really wanted to do something not and this is not about buying arms or 
or the military. This is just helping displaced kids who have been bombed out of their homes. So I wanted yep. to do that. And I immediately called several old friends and endorses and said, would you sign this? And the first person on board, of course, was uh, Matt Cameron. So Matt signed the drum. Michael Shreve signed it. Uh, Michael DeRozier from Heart signed it. And then the most important would be the late Alan White. Um, and this Alan took the time, he and his lovely wife, Gigi, took the time between doctor appointments to meet me downtown Seattle. And he wow. signed the drum. And as far as I know, this is Alan's last actual humanitarian endorsement, the last signature he would have put on a drum. Then, of course, Mr. Greg Gilmore, who is the founding father of grunge drumming, which, you know, with his uh, tenure in uh, Mother Love Bone. Mr. Ron Dunette, who another good friend who uh, volunteered to uh, uh, give me the throw off and and uh, and butt for this, and also signed the drum. And of course, Cap, my buddy, Mr. Greg Keplinger, signed the drum. And last but not least, and some people will like this, and some people won't. Governor Jay Inslee, because this is a Washington State project, and Governor Inslee also signed the drum. So, awesome. uh, so we've got four Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Alan White's probably last uh, official signature on anything. And uh, we were going to auction it off in May, but between all the tragedies, Uvalde, Buffalo, New York, people just killing each other senselessly, and it just sort of sucked the energy right out of it. But um, I'm getting ready to do the auction. I will put up on the Facebook page exactly where it's going to happen and how it's going to go down, and we'll... we'll uh, put it up for a couple of weeks and the highest bidder will get the drum and every penny will go to either UNICEF or Doctors Without Borders. And it will be specifically earmarked for uh, for orphaned and, um, and displaced kids in the Ukraine. And if this works, I'm going to do another drum and we're going to start helping people in the United States, in Africa, wherever we can, because uh, drummers are really some of the most generous people I've ever met. I'm not saying that other Definitely. musicians aren't, but drummers really put their their ass on the line to help people, and I've seen it many times over the yep. years. So, and I'm and I'm just so proud that everybody who participated in this did. So, totally. so thanks to all you guys. Yeah, definitely. And there's there's some videos, uh, a video you shared with me of all most of the people signing it, which was just incredible, yeah. which I, I will share that as well. And once the auction is live, I will share it on my social media. Oh, so keep an you. eye out. Be, I am thank honored you. to be able to, you know, help share what uh, so many great drummers are, are, are participating in. And you as the kind of mastermind and builder behind it be happy to share it so everyone can keep an eye out on that um and if this is if you're listening to this this is 2023 june slash july when this is happening if this is like next year just keep an eye out on uh the boom theory facebook page and see what else al is working on if he's going to do further auctions so you you can catch more down the road but Thank al you. as we wrap up here man let me the last question i'm thinking is if you had any tips or advice for someone who's similar to you where they just want to try things, they are like kind of, you know, they, they want to get their hands dirty. They're maybe you don't have a traditional engineering background They're They want to be entrepreneurial. They want to go their own way. What advice would you give for people for a young you? Let's say if you're telling yourself 30, <laughs> 35 years ago, <laughs> what advice would you give? Or if that doesn't work, someone who's coming up right now. What would you tell people to kind of focus on or not do, you know, just that you've learned? Don't take unsecured credit card loans to start your company unless you absolutely have to. But don't be afraid to do it if you really believe in what you're doing because, man, the interest sucks. Sure. Um, that would be the first bit of advice. Now, if, if you want to do it, just do it. I mean, we're going to be dead soon. You know, I'm 70 years old. I'm rolling into my 71st birthday. And and every as soon as I turn 70, I realize that my time here is very limited. And uh, and so, yeah, if if it's something you believe in, if something you think you can do, you go for it. Yeah. Um, and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. Just do it. Uh, what not to do. You don't have enough time. Uh <laughs> but uh, let's see that I don't a lot of people ask me, you know, would uh, 
you know, the NAM show I got thrown out of, which is to, oh, I yeah. tell people my finest hour. Um, what happened with I, that? Let's hear about that. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I forgot to I ask about the, that. All right. I had these huge crates. Um, as you know, when you when you load into NAM, they take all your crates off the floor and then you have to grease. If you want your stuff early, you sort of grease a teamster. And, and I shouldn't say that because I'll get shot, but it's true. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, you ask the guy, you know, here, here's 20 bucks. Can you get my credit? Yeah, we'll get it for you early. Um, so I had, enough. I didn't want to put the crates into storage because we wanted to get out of there early to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. So I, the crates that my drill presses came in from Taiwan were these giant uh, three quarter inch marine plywood crates. And uh, we put the drums in there and, and I decided I was going to have a backstage motif. And we left the crates on the floor. They were inspected by the Los Angeles Fire Marshal. Everything was approved. And I had my T-shirts hanging over the top of them that said, everything else suck on the back. Everything was going fine. We're, we're having a great show. And uh, a gentleman named Kevin Johnson, who was one of the officers of NAM, um, uh, came by because he had heard complaints because John at Orange County Percussion had Travis in there. They were whacking, making all this noise. And they kept saying, it's boom theory with those damn big electric speakers. And I'm going, no, 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 you, we have headphones. You can't hear us. <laughs> but the noise police were blaming us and, and everybody was blaming us. So, uh, so to make a long story short, which is now impossible, Kevin comes over and uh, Mr. Johnson looks at my booth and he points to the, um, he points to the t-shirts and he says, he goes, that's disgusting because it said everything else sucks on the back. And I said, what's disgusting? He goes, those T-shirts. He goes, and those disgusting crates, those should be in the basement. And I said, no, that's part of my display. I paid. That's yeah, cool. I said, it's a, it's a backstage vibe. He goes, he goes, those are not part of your, he goes, those are going out of here. I said, no, they're not going out of here. I paid for this booth. It was approved by the fire department. Oh, he said that they were a fire hazard. I said, they, it was already improved. I've got the stamp from the fire marshal on here. I've got the, um, I've got the okay from your design panel who came to inspect the booth. And he said, he said, yeah, well, you know, it's disgusting. I said, you want to see disgusting? Go over to the Gemini booth. I just saw two 10 year old boys looking up the the crack of a woman on a go-go stage wearing a, a thong. You know, you're telling me my booth is disgusting? Yeah. And so this went back and forth for a while. And finally he said, those booth or those crates are going in the basement. We're taking them out now or or you're out of the show. And and he started to call somebody over to take them out. And, he, and I said, the first person that steps in my booth to touch my display will spend the rest of the day bleeding. And uh, and he said, that's it. You're out of the show. And wow. I, turned to, I turned to the late Mark Mizuno, my vice president, and Phil Weatherill. And I said, let's pack it up, boys. And we were actually happy because we had sold out. And we were going to go home, go to the hotel, or go back to the hotel and watch the Super Bowl the next day, which means we didn't have to come in Sunday. So Jeez. in the history of NAM, I am the first and only company to have been completely disassembled and removed from the floor in the history of the show. And, <laughs> That's incredible. And that is, Con it is my finest hour. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I, so as an outsider, I've actually never been to NAM. I didn't realize the amount of like, uh, just what goes into building the display and you have to be approved and all this and that. And I get yeah. it, man. I think that sounds cool to have like crates and the backstage vibe and, and things, shirts hanging on it. it. sounds like they were just being nitpicky and in a bad mood. And no, you got the crates were, out. No, the crates were disgusting. They weren't <laughs> ATA cases. They were filthy and gross. I just didn't want to put them in the basement because I wanted to be able to load out quickly without having oh, to wait for man. my crates. That's I know. Awesome. I'm, well, I'm hey, you you lived to to sell another drum another day. So I, I did. Mean, yeah, man, that's incredible. Well, awesome. OK, well, then if anyone's listening, then don't do that. That's the lesson we can learn. From no, that. do it. Do, <laughs> do it. it. Get credit <laughs> you, cards. Get you paid for that damn booth. Come on. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, they, they charge a lot of money for those booths. So I've heard. I've heard. Yeah. And I love the little bit of Orange County info in there as well, because I've had three episodes about the, the history of Orange County. So that's kind of cool. Oh, uh, we blame each other all the time. 
you go down drummer words. No, it's the guys at Yamaha. They're they're making all the notes because they come by with the decibel meters, and it's sure. almost it's. I mean, there's no way it's drummer row. I mean, you I got know. it's the nature of the beast. You're going to make noise. It is. It is incredible. Well. All right, Al, as we wrap up here, why don't you tell people uh, where they can find you? And um, I know you have some cool stuff that's in the works. Obviously, you said if, if the the head that you're working on, uh, everything goes to plan, it'll change a lot of things. So we, tell it to people where they can keep up with you and see what's happening in your website and all that well, stuff. Until I rebuild the website, which is a million years old, um, uh, Boom Theory... Boom Theory Corp at Facebook is where you can find all my goofy stuff. Once I've rebuilt the website, then we're going to switch over and we'll use the Facebook and Instagram uh, sites to do nothing but drive traffic to the uh, to the website because I really want to build a community on yep. the website that has nothing to do with social media. And social media has its place in the industry, but I want, I want my own website back. Sure. Yeah. And websites are time-consuming and uh, just a whole thing once you start one thing and they're expensive and if you do it yourself on one of the click and drag things like i was trying to build i was looking at a portfolio website to kind of put together for some work stuff and it's like man you start it you're two hours in and you're like i've done nothing i've done i've written a couple lines of text very time consuming but uh everyone can once that's ready boomtheory.com just and also just you can google boom theory and read a lot of cool things and and find find them on social media i will share the links in the description for all that uh per usual so um al i think this is awesome man i'm, I'm glad to have you on here because i think you're dare i say a bit i think you're you're, you're i don't want to say an unsung hero because a lot of people know about what you've done but yeah. Um, I think more people need to know about it. So I'm glad to have you on and help and help share that well, story. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.